Welcome to Lessons from the Helpful Dead, where you'll learn the world is not what it seems, and you are much more than you think you are. And here you'll learn about positive and reassuring messages from supposedly dead people whose main purpose is to help us. Find out what happens after we die, why we're here, how we got here, where we're going, and discover that you are really a powerful eternal spirit. I'm Dan McEnany. We've been discussing the notion uh, that we are all tourists, souls traveling through various universes and experiencing some of them. And in that regard, I have cited the experiences of uh, Bob Monroe and Edgar Cayce, and I've also stated that it's important to understand the explanations of the entity Seth here. So today we'll continue with the explanations that Seth provided and this time, we'll uh, talk about his comments on making sense of Earth life, the time-space illusion. I will be repeating a lot of the points that have been made in earlier episodes, but I do think that it's worthwhile. Because along with the repetition, there are some special emphases on certain points. And it's good to remember them now. So, for example, you know that in previous episodes, I've noted that when the soul enters the human body in an incarnation, it's somewhat similar to putting on a virtual reality headset, or in olden days, I would have said 3D glasses. So that through the virtual reality headset, we see things differently from the way they really are. In order to play the Earth game, we need to temporarily stamp out our awareness of the uh, greater existence that we have. All of us need to agree on certain basic root assumptions of our reality here, with those assumptions serving as the framework in which our little reality drama can be played out. And so we all agree that time is real, we have a series of moments, that an objective world exists out there separate from us, independent from our creation and perception of it, that we are separate from each other with each of us locked in within physical bodies, limited in terms of what we can do and make, not only by time, but also by space. Most of us agree, as our scientists do, that all perceptions come through the physical senses from outside of us, and that no information can come from within, <clears throat> from any, quote, inner senses. We agree to have good and evil, and that one of our principal operating mechanisms will be cause and effect, as opposed to bringing an object or event into existence just by focusing on it with intensity, so that it materializes. Again, so instead of cause and effect, which is what we all agree to here, uh, the alternative explanation that Seth provides is that we bring things into existence just by focusing on them with intensity, so they materialize. Now, operating by these root assumptions in this particular stop in our tour through many universes, we're temporarily forced to focus tightly on the actions within our, within our play. From our soul's larger perspective, the lives we lead in the various reincarnations are our participation in several plays, with all of them existing at one time. 
Now, some who are resting or otherwise occupied between lives will try to communicate to those active in the play, which is what we are now, how things really are. <clears throat> but in between lives, they're still in the wings, so to speak, not yet fully aware of the total larger reality, the reincarnational reality, in which we all exist. So we do all this <clears throat> so that we can experience emotions that we couldn't otherwise experience, things, as I've said in the past, like a joyful surprise, the agony of betrayal and seeming defeat, the anticipation of something good happening to us, the excitement of not knowing how a sporting event or a battle might turn out. But in the process, we're also learning how to be co-creators. We're learning how to handle the responsibility that belong to any individualized consciousness that has been given the power to create. Now, that's us, individualized consciousnesses that have been given the power to create. So we're learning how to handle that power responsibly. Here in Earth School, we learn how to create responsibly so that when we go on to bigger and better things, we'll create realities that are more joyful and fulfilling than what we're creating right now. Meanwhile, the rocks and stones and mountains and the earth itself are all living camouflage realities. They're temporary illusions that we create while they are necessary for our learning to proceed. Now, that's not to say that physical reality is false. Instead, it is just a physical picture we create that is one of the infinite number of ways of perceiving the many guises through which consciousness expresses itself. And Seth has made that point a number of times, right? All around us, everything we're creating is one of the infinite number of ways of perceiving the many guises through which consciousness expresses itself. <clears throat> so physical reality is an illusion, yes, but it's a real illusion that's caused by a greater reality. And the illusion has purpose and meaning. The reality we perceive is an interpretation of larger events as they intrude upon our three-dimensional reality. Okay? It's another way to look at it. The reality we perceive is an interpretation of larger events as they intrude upon our three-dimensional reality. Remember Betty White talking about matter being uh, arrested frequency, frequencies that have to be slowed down uh, for us to perceive them. Anyway, <clears throat> the events themselves are mental, not physical. So what we perceive through our senses, while it has little resemblance to the facts of the greater underlying reality that supports it, it is useful, it's helpful, and it's real. We're learning in a three-dimensional context how our emotional and psychic existence can create all sorts of physical forms and events. This enables valuable training. As Seth points out, will we eventually learn that our physical environments are not objective things that exist independently of us, that they are indeed extensions of ourselves, materialized mental acts that extend outward from our consciousness. Now, in that regard, Seth says he's a, quote, personality with a message, close quote. The message is that we create the world we know, and we've been given the most 
awesome gift of all, the ability to project our thoughts and emotions outward into physical form. But with it comes responsibility. We create both the glories and the terrors we experience. Until we realize that, we will refuse to accept the responsibility part. Apparently, some of us err on the side of caution, afraid of projecting our ideas and desires outward because we have an underlying belief that what is powerful is evil. Now, that's certainly understandable enough, given the well-supported observation over centuries that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We've only to read the international news stories of many countries today where this is obviously the case. And if we're to be totally honest about it, we probably don't need to look at the international news. Domestic news will suffice. But Seth insists the universe is a good universe, one that knows its own vitality. And that vitality is within each one of us. We needn't hesitate to encourage it freely, he maintains, right? because our own nature is a good nature, and we can trust it. Well, that could be hard for a lot of us to accept, given what we see going on in the world today, but that's what Seth maintains. Our nature is a good nature, and we can trust it. The major obstacle for us in trying to make sense of the human time-space illusion, he says, is our belief system. If we believe only in the context of this one life, born only to death and annihilation, then we will not use our freedoms in this existence. If we believe we're stuck in time and in our bodies at the mercy of events that seem to happen to us, before which we are often seemingly powerless, then we will not get past the physical limits imposed by our limiting beliefs. We'll not come to realize that our thoughts, alone and intertwined with others, form reality. On the other hand, when we do achieve that realization, we're no longer a slave to events. Seth maintains <clears throat> that to get out of the box we've created for ourselves, we simply have to learn the methods, and they've been known for centuries. Basically, they come down to listening, listening to our inner self, which theoretically we can do any time we decide to put our minds to it. Another obstacle to making sense of earth life, he maintained, is that we are necessarily so tightly focused on it that we emphasize all the similarities that bind us together and we ignore the differences. So there might be perfect agreement among a group of us that the couch we're sitting on is solid and there's empty space between those of us sitting on it and between our couch and someone else's swivel chair. If we were to focus instead on the dissimilarities, apparently we'd be amazed that we can form any notion at all of an organized, structured reality. We'd see, as Seth does, we'd see that the space between people is not vacant, that it is full of molecules and electromagnetic field forces, right? that the couch we're sitting on is not solid, and that we are sitting on emptiness that we do not perceive with our tight focus. Through our physical senses, we impose an organization on what we perceive. So we are imposing an organization on what we perceive and thereby create it. In fact, none of us perceive the same couch as the next person. We perceive only, quote, idea constructions, 
and cannot see the idea constructions perceived by someone else. Telepathically, though, we all agree the couch is there and that it's in a particular place in space. So what we're perceiving is not reality, but ideas we have constructed about reality. Uh, likewise, as I've noted in previous discussions, when a pretty girl enters a crowded room, no two people see the same girl. Each of them constructs their own idea of the person they perceive. Each perceives their own creation. So there is not just one of her. There are as many of her as there are people in the room. In the same manner, each of us transposes our individual ideas on all the atoms and molecules that we perceive. Physical matter is not solid unless we believe it is. The organization we perceive is transposed from within us to seemingly outside of us. That's the process by which each of us forms the reality that we know and telepathically we combine with others to create the reality that we consider common to all of us. At our soul level, we know this, but at our conscious focus personality level, we pretend not to know. The objects that we perceive are themselves symbols, symbols that stand for inner experience. There are mass physical symbols that we all agree on, such as mountains and seas, as well as private personal symbols, such as our bodies and the immediate environment around us. In fact, the whole structure of physical life as we know it is a symbolic statement made by groups of entities, that's us, who choose to work with physical symbolism. As I say, that's us, or at least those of us who choose to stop on our tour and experience the human time-space illusion. So our body is a symbol for what we are or what we think we are. And those might be two very different things. As hard as it might be for us to understand and accept, any physical ailment, according to Seth, is symbolic of an inner reality or statement. I've given it a fair amount of thought. I still can't figure out why. At the level of my larger self, I have given myself cancer five times. I'm sure there's a good reason, though, maybe several reasons. And I'm assuming the experience will at some point be understood by me to be a positive one overall. Uh, in, in a sense, I've already come to that realization because it's helped me relate uh, better to people on disability whom I worked with for a number of years. <clears throat> well, after all, Seth maintains that not just ailments and good times, but our entire life is a statement in physical terms standing for inner experience. Written upon time as we understand it, time as the medium on which we write. From that perspective, illness and suffering are the results of misdirection of creative energy, according to Seth. So um, that's interesting, right? Physical terms, our entire life, right, in physical terms, stands for inner experience written upon time as the medium on which we write. And as I said, he said, illness and suffering are results of the misdirection of creative energy. And at that point, he gave what is one of my favorite lines, suffering is not good for the soul unless it teaches you how to stop suffering. 
and uh, learning how to handle our creative energy, he explained, we often, me we often misdirect it, right? thereby automatically bringing us back to important inner questions that we need to solve. It might or might not be helpful, but Seth did use an analogy of a painting depicting a great battle. Mankind errs, brings ill health, death, and desolation upon himself, but he's still using his creative abilities to create a world. By observing his creations, he learns to use his abilities better. The work is still a creative achievement, though it might portray tragedy or unspeakable terror, just as the painting portrays intense suffering and death. Likewise, in wars, we use creativity to create destruction. Illness and suffering, he points out, are a byproduct of the learning process, created by us, but in themselves quite neutral. Continuing the discussion of how symbols relate to earth life, he stated there are some rare instances of pure knowing and pure feeling without the need for symbols, but these are seldom translated into normal conscious terms. Rather, the symbols are a way of expressing feelings that can never be expressed adequately through words. All our symbols represent an infinite variation of feelings that will appear differently in the various stages of consciousness, and they will always accompany us. He gave an interesting example, the emotion of joy, which he claims changes the objects in the perceiver's environment so that the perceiver sees them in a far brighter light with more clarity and far more vividly. Then the environment gives him feedback that reinforces his joy. He then goes on to describe how the joy affects daydreams, uh, dreaming, dream symbols, the physical body itself, and the consciousness stages where symbols begin to fade away. I'm reminded of that uh, old Broadway song that begins, I have often walked down this street before, but the pavement always stayed beneath my feet before. I think Robert Goulet recorded that. Now another point, just as we need to be continually changing and developing as the spirits that we are, so do our symbols, which need to be fluid and ever-changing. Unfortunately, some symbols instead can be used as a sort of container to house uh, original experience, thereby deceiving rather than illuminating. When that happens, fear is always involved. Fears act as a distorting lens and a barrier to free flow. This builds up pressure, and symbols of an explosive nature then act as releasing agents, methods to reduce the pressure. As Seth put it, without physical storms, we would all go insane. Without physical storms, we would all go insane. Sounds like a Jimmy Buffett line, but that's the way Seth put it. Without physical storms, we would all go insane. Now, given the immense pressure on millions of people around the globe right now, we can expect a lot of very powerful storms. One of the toughest things for us to deal with in earth life is the presence of evil. Seth explains that opposites have validity only in our system of reality, that good and evil are opposites, and just as up is the opposite of down, right? He showed a sense of humor when he pointed out that Christ could just as well have disappeared sideways. Good and evil effects, just like up and down, are basically illusions, as all opposites are. Instead, in the larger reality, all acts are a part of a greater good. In the larger reality, all acts are part of a greater good. 
We focused personalities do not perceive wholes, but just portions. The evil that we perceive is a distorted version of a tiny portion of much larger events that are intruding on our three-dimensional universe. Now, by stretching the bounds of your intellect, you can almost understand that and accept it. But it's almost impossible to accept emotionally and difficult to internalize intellectually when the news we see each day is of mass killings, girls sold into sex slavery, and innocent people burned to death by terrorists. Uh, the most recent example just yesterday is of a, a, a trans person killing kids in grammar school and innocent teachers as well. But we need to try, if we're ever going to get past this world we're currently experiencing, we need to try to stretch our intellect and our imagination to at least uh, try to grasp the concept. Now, uh, at my age, I probably don't have too many earth years left to remain in this body. Um, after physical death, I'm trusting I'll have a better understanding of evil to see it in a larger non-physical perspective in which it makes sense and is not evil, but it's tough. Now, in fact, if, if I were one of those people who do a great job of listening to their inner self while they're alive, while they're alive, right? Which so far I'm not. I'm not one of those people that uh, do a great job of listening to their inner self. I could even come to see things from that perspective while I'm still alive. Uh, well, maybe I'm just not that developed, but I'm going to just follow Bob Monroe's advice and just do the best I can. That's what he said after he died, <laughs> speaking to his daughter. Just do the best you can. <clears throat> now, speaking of evil, the devil in Seth's terms is a superlative hallucination. The devil idea is a mass projection of certain fears. The older religions apparently understood that, and they understood that storms are highly creative, natural events. So here we need to remember the point made in uh, one of my books about Christ's crucifixion, that thoughts are real that the mass thoughts projected over the centuries about the crucifixion have their own reality. And they can have a far greater impact on our physical lives than the events that were actually physical at that time. So that was my book, Christ Was Not Crucified, but I point out that the thoughts about the crucifixion have had tremendous power and resulted in a, a lot of good things. So... <clears throat> Likewise, the mass thoughts projected over the centuries about the devil concept have their own reality, and they can impact us in our physical reality, even though no such devil exists outside of those thoughts and hallucinations. You can just ask the poor women who were burned for being witches in Salem, Massachusetts. Now, there's one more characteristic of the human time-space illusion that uh, deserves mention. It's the assumption that our thoughts are secret from one another, and I've mentioned recently, at the level of daily conscious living, they seem to be, but it's apparent through telepathic communication they are not. And in that regard, I talked about the experiences of Joe McMonagall, who can travel with his consciousness to any time and place. He was the chief psychic in an army program that lasted 20 years. A government agency wanted to test him by having him travel to their labs and observe what one of the chief scientists was doing for one day. They were not surprised when he was able to tell them what the scientist did, but they were understandably concerned when Joe was able to tell them what the scientist was thinking while he performed those chores. 
All right, well, that's uh, the end of today's sessions and a session rather. And on the next session, I'll be talking about Seth's ideas uh, relating to our experience between lives and also how, what he talks about the notion of God. Again, I'm Dan McEnany bringing you lessons from the helpful dead.